Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Last Jim. Last couple Cuban. weeks we've been talking uh, about Christmas, of course. We're in that season and we've been doing individual teachings that ended up being very succinct teachings. I, I started this series and as a non-series. I was just planning on teaching four lessons. And they were supposed to be kind of autonomous alone. They set, set aside to themselves one-offs, if you will. But it hasn't worked that way. God's timing is exactly right all the time. And so like last week, for example, last week we talked about um, the the promise that God made us, that He made a cosmic declaration in, in uh, Genesis three fifteen against sin, and He made us some promises that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, that there would be victory coming, that we could be assured that in that victory it would be complete. And these are the promises that God made to us. And this is what we talked about last week. This week, what I want to talk to you about is how God made those promises to us. But this week, how He kept that promise to us. Those promises to us. Amen? And so I'm going to teach today out of Galatians chapter 4. If you want to go ahead and turn there. I'm actually going to teach part of it as the intro and then the actual teaching portion through a separate text. But Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, reads like this. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul speaking of course. I'm sorry, I'm in Ephesians. Now I say, I being Paul of course, <laughs> As long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. So Paul's sitting the, setting the stage here for where we were versus where we are. In verses 1 through 3, he says, this is what we were as Jewish people, as, and now as Christians, this is what we were. We were bound by the law. He says this, I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ from a, at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. He has the benefit, the promise of being an heir, to the fortune, but he can't seize it until which time the father determines to release it to him. And during those times, he would re until he released it to them, until the child was given what was his by, by birthright, he was managed by a guardian, a tutor. And if you'll look at verses 24 and 25 of chapter 3, 
you're going to see that that tutor is the law. And so he then compares that time to our condition. He says, they haven't grown to maturity yet. They don't understand. And they are guarded, managed, tutored by the law. And as they're guarded, managed, and tutored by the law, they can never come to maturity. And until they come to maturity, they can't receive the full promise of the inheritance that they've been given. Is everybody with me? And so as long as we were under the law, then we could not receive the fullness of the promise of the inheritance given. But, The law has always been effect, ineffective at changing people's behavior. You say, well, we got the law. Jews were proud of their law. We got the law. We're good. We belong to Moses. We belong to Abraham. But can I tell you, the law can't change them. People are going to be who people are going to be. Period. I did some research. There's a there's a gentleman, and I use the term as loosely as I can because I don't know the guy specifically. His name is Henry Earle. And Henry Earle is recorded as the person that has been arrested the most times in U.S. history. And he got, he's been arrested 1,500 times, but plus 1,500 times. Now, all of these charges were small-ish. They were non-murderous. They were assault, aggravated assault, intoxication, public disorder, all of these things. But he was arrested 1,500 times, get your mind around that, and spent over 16 years in jail for these small infractions. Why didn't he, at some point, after 1,500 times being arrested, figure out how to operate within the law, because he didn't have the ability to operate within the law. There was nothing empowering him to live within the law. And we were the same way before Christ Jesus. We may have wanted to do right. We may have even known what was right. But until we are empowered by Christ Jesus, we're like this guy. Still being managed by a tutor, but incapable of sitting under that tutor. Not only had he been arrested a hundred or 1,500 times, and I know that sounds like a huge number, but let me give you, a, a, in my mind, even a more staggering one. The people that have a, an arrest record currently in the United States, if you took everybody that's ever been arrested, it would be the population of the United States in 1900. Or three times the current population of Australia. That's how many people have been arrested and have a criminal record in the United States. You're all, Pastor Jim, why are you talking about this? Because the law doesn't have the ability to create holiness in us. Morality in us. The law cannot legislate morality. It tries that's the whole purpose of the law, to show you what's good, what's bad, 
to reward good and to punish evil. But the fact of the matter is, we can't be empowered by the law. We can't live the law without that empowerment. And so that's what Paul is saying here. He said, but... When we were fullness, when the fullness of time came, I'm in verse 4, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Amen. And so what I want to tell you is he made a promise to us in Genesis 3.15. He keeps that promise to us in Galatians 4, 4 through 6. He says that victory is coming, that the enemy will be defeated. And in Galatians 4, 4 through 6, he explains how and why that enemy is defeated. He keeps those promises. And I want to talk to you about the three promises that are shown in these scriptures 4 through 6. First and foremost, God's promise is in God's timing. Do you hear what I'm saying? I need you to pay attention to that because some of y'all are walking around mad because you haven't received what you think the promise is yet. It might be that you haven't received the promise yet and it might be that you have no understanding of what the actual promise is. But God promise is always in God's timing. The first part of verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time came. I love this language. It's kind of poetic. But what's it mean? It means that God moved on our behalf to send Christ Jesus as quickly in history as he possibly could. At the very moment when the fullness of time had occurred, he sent his son Jesus. When everything was perfect, he sent his son Jesus. When there was the greatest opportunity for the spread of the gospel, he sent his son Jesus. When the economic situation, the political situation, when all of these things were exactly as they should be, then he sent his son Jesus. Not a minute before, not a minute after. You know why? Because his will is that all be saved. And all of us are saved by the gospel message of Jesus Christ that starts with, you are a sinner, but God sent his son. And so his promises are in his time. I want us to get that, that he has a plan for our salvation. There's a verse, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 says this, just as He chose us in Him before, everybody say before, the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Did you catch that? God had a plan. And that plan was to send Jesus as quickly as He possibly could for one reason, that we may be holy and and blameless before Him, God the Father. I know this doesn't excite us. It's sad. 
because it should excite us. We should be running tops of pews with the even beginning to conceive of the idea that the creator of the universe, master of all things, the he who made all things, is seen in all things, everything was made for him, by him, and through him, that creator God made a plan for your salvation. When he could have killed you instead. Fact is, that's what we deserve. We deserve death according to the scripture. But this isn't what God promised us. This isn't what God gave us. Instead, God created a plan for us. That we be adopted and prepared. So that when the time came, Jesus Christ might be born, that we might see salvation. In the 400 years, some of you guys may not know this, there's 400 years of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Like for 400 years, nobody heard from God at all. The only thing they had is what was previously written. There was no new revelation. There was no prophet speaking. It was absolute silence for the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But let me tell you, just because God is silent does not mean God is absent. Just because God is silent does not mean God is still. Some of y'all need to grab a hold of that. I'm not hearing from God. Not to be cliche, but teachers never talk during a test. They want to make sure that you're confident enough to know the answer and to walk in the answer that you've already been given. They had everything that they needed in the, New T- in the Old Testament to expect Jesus Christ to arrive in the New Testament. But they weren't listening. They weren't paying attention. They weren't watching. And so the plan that Jesus Christ had for them wasn't seen by them because they weren't prepared to see it. But it doesn't change the idea that God did everything necessary to ensure that the right time would come. That in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ would come. In the fullness of time, everything would be prepared perfectly for his arrival. And it was. This is incredible to me. That God so sovereign, so orchestrates history, so providential, that he waited until, in all of eternity, until a very specific time, era, Month, day, second, for a child to be born so that you might be saved. Anybody else's mind blown by that? And so he prepared the world. He prepared the populated world culturally. Let me go over some things with you. He prepared and po- he prepared the populated world culturally. Prior to Jesus coming, there was, there was a common language established by Alexander the Great. This is the first time this had happened in human history, where no matter where you went, even if they didn't speak the same language as you, 
Everybody spoke Greek. So it doesn't matter what you said or what district you were from, you could communicate the gospel to anybody you came into contact with. God prepared that beforehand. He not only prepared the world, the known world, culturally, but politically. During that time, the Romans instituted the Pax Romana, which is Roman peace, which provided economic and political stability. For the first time, you could travel from city to city on manufactured roads while under a guard from Roman soldiers, and you could do so without a re for the first time in history with no real threat of dying. So you not only now have an opportunity to travel with the gospel and to speak with the gospel, but to do it in expectation that you're going to actually get to where you're going, which provokes a lot of people to do what they're supposed to be doing. Because how many of you guys, how many of all of us have said, well, I would preach the gospel except for... You see, God's removing these things before he sent Jesus. He prepared the populated world religiously. During the Babylonian captivity, Israel once again forsook idolatry. Jews developed synagogues in that 400-year time frame. Why does that matter? That matters because for the first time in history, there were biblical learning centers where the gospel, gospel could be pronounced, where the Old Testament could be proclaimed and recognized as the shadow of Jesus Christ that it was that everybody attended every week. I think that's incredible. God orchestrated it perfectly. And not only did he do that, but in that 400 years, the Old Testament was canonized. For the first time, the entire Old Testament, as we understand it, was canonized and taught in the synagogues. God had a plan for your salvation. But his plan, like all plans, are in his timing. And we have to recognize that just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. Matter of fact, the fact that we don't understand it, and it's a God that's so infinite that he can't be understood, means that it probably is true. If I could understand it, it's probably not from God, because God's too big for me to grab a hold of. Praise God, he gives me pieces of revelation of himself. But I dare any of you, challenge any of you, to say you have any full grasp of any portion of God's deity. Any portion. Even the simplest portion, whatever that is. Because you don't. So not only did he prepare for your salvation, I want you to know that God's promise is in God's timing in everything. I'm going to read two verses to you, and I want you to personalize them. They're verses that many of you, especially if you grew up in a religious background, have, you've heard these verses a thousand times, which is the problem. Because familiarity breeds complacency. You've heard something so many times that you forgot what it means, or you stop paying attention to it. 
And here's these verses. Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. This is the psalmist talking to God. Which means that you see me in the womb. God, you saw me in the womb. And in your book, while you were seeing me still in the womb, were all written the days that were ordained for me. You, you saw every day of my life. Every day that was set aside for the purposes of me living. You saw before I breathed the first time. When as yet there was not even one of them. God loves you, has a plan for you. And he's had that plan not just from the foundations of the earth, but from the belly of your own mother. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not calamity. To give you a future and a hope. To give you a future and a hope. He knows every single day of your life and has a plan for every single day of your life. And sometimes, can I just tell you, life stinks. I see some of y'all's Facebook pages. I see I'd have conversations with you. I, I, everybody in here that has a social media account at some point this year has posted something about, man, 2020 been tough because of blah, 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 whatever. But you know, you know what? Better to suffer for a day in righteousness than to submit to sin and suffer for eternity in unrighteousness. Many of us, because of the hard times that we've seen or what we've gone through or maybe even what we're currently going through, I talked a little bit about this on Wednesday. <clears throat> In Psalms 40, we, this, is, this is what we hear. Psalms 42, 3. Men ask me all day long, where is your God? The psalmist was talking about people talking trash about him. He said, people say to me all day long, where's your God now? My question is, have you ever asked yourself that question? God, where are you at now? God, where are you at now? You told me, you promised me in Jeremiah 29, 11, that you had plans for welfare and not calamity to give me a future and a hope. Where are you now? I'm dealing with such and such. I'm dealing with financial issues. I've got kids that have lost their mind or won't talk to me at all. I deal with addiction. I've lost a job. I don't know what your deal is or what your problem is or what situation you're involved in, but can I tell you it doesn't matter because God's promises are true. He's not a liar. And when He says, I have plans for your welfare and not calamity to give you a future and a hope, that's exactly what He means. You know where we get messed up? I almost said you, but I'm, I'm going to include myself. You know where we get messed up? We get messed up when we think it doesn't happen when we think it should happen. God's silent, not inactive. Perhaps he's preparing the exact right time 
for that to happen for you. He's working until the fullness of time presents itself. We should focus on that. But you know what? At the end of the day, you may never actually see the promise in the physical. Man, I don't need to hear that. It's true. If I never see my promise in the physical, but endure to the end, to the hope of seeing Christ Jesus for all of eternity, then I will have received everything that he promised me. But you don't understand. Oh, I understand. I don't think you understand. God has a plan to prosper you. And if that's in heaven, that's okay with me. That's actually better for me. Hmm. In our trusting in God's timing, we know our promise has been realized. Number two, God's promise is realized in God's Son. God's promise is realized in God's Son. God sent forth His Son, 4b through 5a. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he may redeem those who are under the law. That's a mouthful of theology in that text. It says that Jesus was the Son of God, born of a woman, under the law. You understand how significant each one of these things are? That Jesus was the Son of God, is the Son of God, Born of a woman under the law. He was, born, he was the son of God, which means he was deity. Which means as deity, he is capable enough and powerful, powerful enough to be our savior. He had to be born as deity. Not so that he can walk in perfection, because he walked in perfection in the flesh. He dealt with temptation. And denied it, which means that he behaved perfectly as a result of his flesh, his unity, his alignment with God. He was born the Son of God so that he could take on the weight of our sin because we don't have the ability to do it. We don't have the strength or the stamina to endure what he had the strength and the stamina to endure. He did it in his deity. He was not only the Son of God, He's born of a woman, which means in flesh, in order to be able to be our substitution. We deserve death. There's a couple things I hit almost every time we meet. This is one of them. Because if you don't understand what you deserve, you don't appreciate what you get. And according to Romans 6.23, you deserve death. The penalty of sin is death. But God didn't give us death. He was born of a woman to be able to be our substitution. He became sin. He took on sin. He became cursed, hung on a tree. He was blasphemed, beaten, stricken, 
smitten, pierced, crushed. All of the things that uh, the scripture in Isaiah 53 specifically, verse 4 and 5 says about him. All of these things happened to him so that he could be our substitution. But not just our substitution in just taking our place, but in our substitution in taking on the wrath of God. He absorbed the wrath of God that you deserve, that we deserved. I don't want you to walk past that and say, Pastor Jim, you say that too much or too, or you say it all the time. I need to say it all the time because a holy God won't be in the presence of anything unholy. And without Jesus Christ, it's exactly what we would be. We would be unholy, undeserving, unworthy, and incapable of being our own sacrifice. So he was born of the Son of God, born of a woman, so that he could take on the full penalty for our sin, and so that he could be the propitiation of God's wrath, the appeasement of God's wrath. And now there's no more wrath for us. That makes me happy. To think that the only thing God has for me is love, not wrath. Because you know, he hates sin. Not only was he born the Son of God, born of a woman, but he was born under the law to obey and be judged by conformity to God's written law like every other man. How many of you have kept the law perfectly? And I'm not talking about the Mosaic law. I'm talking about the only two real laws that we have. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else is covered under these two laws. How many of you guys have kept that perfectly? then you deserve hell. I, went, I started this whole thing with you can't legislate morality. It takes the Spirit of God to do that. You know why I don't speed? My wife tells me all the time, she goes, you drive like an old man now. What happened? There's two reasons. One, because I'm just slowing down, I guess, in my old age. But two, there are instances where I realize if I'm driving too fast, I might hurt someone. I don't break the law speeding because I love the people on the road enough that I don't want to hurt them. I don't require a law to make me obey the law. Because if our love is right, we won't steal. We won't murder. We won't desire those things that aren't for us. We won't envy. We won't do all the sins that the Mosaic Law speaks against. Sadly, none of us can do that perfectly, but that's why God gave us Christ Jesus. So that in acceptance of Him, we might be able to walk in the grace and the mercy that is new every day, that a simple confession or reconfession of that sin would cause it to fall out of our life and out of His memory. Ooh. Man, I'm preaching good today. I hope y'all paying attention and taking some notes. 
It's because of his perfection that he was able to, do, to redeem us. Romans 8, 3 through 4. For what the law could not do, which is make us perfect, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He sent his own Son. I would Listen to this very closely. For what the law could not do, which is legislate morality, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. For what we weren't capable of doing, God did. You know how God did? By sending his son. Because he had to. He had to send his son, born of a woman, obedient to the law, because the imperfect cannot be substituted for the imperfect. Only the perfect can be substituted for the imperfect. 1 Peter 1, 18, 19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Did you catch that? I tried to read it slow enough. With the precious blood, the blood of Christ, the God of the universe spilt his blood for the filth and vile of humanity. Why'd he do it? Why'd he do it? He did it to keep a promise to us. Remember I told you in Genesis 3.15 he made a promise that the seed of a woman would crush the head of the seed of the, the devil. That seed here is Jesus. He did it to keep a promise to us. God's, which is my third point, God's promises make us God's family. You know what promise he made to us? To restore us back to relationship. God plans the end from the beginning, which means that he wants the end of all things to look like the beginning of all things when we walked with him in intimacy, when we walked with him in love, when we walked with him in the cool of the day, when we could stand to be in his presence because we were sinless, these things are only possible in Christ Jesus. God's promises mean that we're part of God's family. This is the promise he set out to make and keep to us that he was going to restore us back into familial relationship. He's going to restore us Back to intimacy. 
and he had a plan to do it. You guys hear me say, and I've said it for five years, and I, I intentionally use the same three verses. This happens. This moving from sinfulness to intimacy, separation to intimacy, from the outside to the inside, happens in the message of the gospel. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Maybe, oh, he's going to do Romans 3.23, John 3.16, and Romans 10.9 again. That's right. You know why I repeat the same verses to you all the time in regard to the gospel? Because it's not my job, although it's part of my responsibility as a, as a, as a person that's been saved, it's my, not my job as the pastor to go out and save folks. It's my job as the pastor to equip you to go out and tell the gospel so that they might be saved. And if I can make that as simple as I can for you, then I've equipped you well. And someone that's been equipped well will do the work of the ministry. But the Bible says, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means we all deserve death. None of us are good enough to be in the presence of a holy king because of the sin that we were in. The sin that we committed and the sin that we were born into. You, the gospel message has to start there. Because what good is a Savior if you don't understand your need for a Savior? So you were given, even though you were sin, both by birth and by action, you were given a solution to that problem. And that was Jesus. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, this is the solution to that sin problem, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Can I tell you, you can't do it any other way. The only solution to your problem is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the gate. He is the good shepherd. He is the true vine. It is only through him that we are saved. It is only through Him that we are saved. For you will not enter the presence of God except through Him. Period. So we have a sin problem, but God in His grace and His mercy, and in a way and for reasons I can't understand, decided to solve that problem for us. And now, the question, the only question that we should have is, well, how do I acquire that solution? Pastor Jim, I'm a sinner. I've either never given my life to the Lord, or as the book of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says, that I haven't been careful with what I've, had, what I've been given, and I've allowed myself to drift away. I need that solution. Give me that solution. Tell me the answer. The answer is simple. Romans 10, 9. 
says, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. Well, that sounds too simple. Simple for you. It wasn't simple for him. But there's some stipulating requirements. And you're oh, okay, here we go. Here's the checklist of stuff I got to do. The checklist is... Are, are in that verse. Declare Jesus Christ as Lord. If you're looking for a Savior, don't look to Jesus. If you're looking for a Lord that's also a Savior, look to Jesus. Because if you can't make Him Lord, He's not going to be your Savior. Because that's what the Bible says. Declare with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. Which means I have to do what he says, when he says, according to his word. I have to be obedient to the word of God. This is how we know that we belong to him. Because we are obedient to him. According to John 14, that's in that chapter three different times. Those that are obedient, love me. Those that listen to me, love me. And it says, believe in your heart. So not only declare with your mouth, but believe in your heart. You're all, in your mouth all right i declare jesus christ is lord and then you you say that flippantly you walk out here and act like you never said it think you're good to go sadly over i would dare say i would give a just in the short amount of time i've been doing this i would give a an estimation that greater than 50 percent of people that declare jesus christ is lord walk out of the church having never moved that information from their the 18 inches from their brain to their heart and never actually believe and are just as going to hell when they leave here as they are when they walked in here. You have to believe it. You have to walk in faith, understand that it's true. How do you do that? You do that supernaturally by the power of the Spirit of God. People used to ask me, Pastor Jim, how, 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 what, what happens when you give an altar call and nobody responds? How does that make you feel? I said, it used to make me fussy. Man, I just poured my heart out. Y'all ain't even move. But you know what? Then I realized that's not my problem. It's my problem to deliver to you. It's your problem to pick up and carry. And so there I've delivered to you. The gospel message. And I pray and I pray and I pray. I pray every, every day for this congregation. That if there's anybody that walks into this room that doesn't know you. That by the power of your Holy Spirit you pin them to their chair with conviction. So that they can do nothing else but give their life to you. Not an expectation that they can be perfect, but that you will ultimately make them perfect. That's the guy we serve. That's a guy that made a promise to us to bring us into intimacy. I love that. Because when we can cry out, Abba, Father, these are words of intimacy. These are like the modern day daddy. 
I saw a bumper sticker or something not very long ago that said something along the lines of, we need a relationship with God that does not say, oh, no, I did this wrong. I hope my dad doesn't find out. We need a relationship with God that says, oh, no, I messed this up. I need to go tell my daddy. Because this is what intimacy looks like. And in intimacy, there's provision. In intimacy, there's protection. In intimacy, there's peace. And I don't know about you, but not to, not to say it again, but in a world that's upside down, those are my three biggest needs. Protection, provision, and peace. Those things are available to you. I don't know where you're at with the Lord, but I'd be remiss to declare the gospel to you without asking you this question. What are you doing with Jesus? What are you doing with the information that you've been given? My prayer is that the Holy Spirit has spoken to you today. I've noticed that some people, they they get saved and they do really well and then they they get a reputation within the church as being saved and servants and all of that. And they, they get caught up in their reputation and they drift away from God, but they never want to admit that they drifted away from God because how's it going to look? I've been an usher for four years. How's it going to look if I go up there and get prayed for? First off, this is family. Ain't nobody going to care about that. We're going to celebrate that with you. And secondly, you don't need to worry about that either. The only thing you need to worry about is that you and God are okay. And only you and God can be okay if you make that declaration, believe in your heart that it's true. So I don't know where you are. If you're good, if you're as certain today as you've ever been that if you died right this second, you're going to heaven, I'm not talking to you except to ask you to pray. But if you haven't committed your life to the Lord, if you feel the pulling, the urging of the Holy Spirit, conviction. People say, what's conviction? If your heart's racing to where you can feel it in your neck, and you're not sure what you need to do, but you know you need to do something, that's the Spirit of God moving on you to do something. And whether you've ever given your life to the Lord or whether you've allowed yourself to drift away, what a glorious time to make that right. But the time when we celebrate that Jesus Christ came so we could. If that's you, we don't do head bowed, eyes, eyes closed here. Because we celebrate with you. We try to act like family around here. Sometimes we're annoying cousins, sometimes not so much. But we try to act like family around here. And I don't know about you, but if I just found out one of my family members made the best decision they've ever made, I'd want to celebrate them and see it. So if that's you, and you have something you need to get right with God in your life, I want you to raise your hand so I can pray for you. Thank you. Anybody else? I don't belabor 
altar calls or prayer calls because I can't convince you to do only that which God can convict you to do. But if there's anyone else, then we'll praise Him for the one. Father God, in Jesus' name, we thank You for the opportunity that we have not only to declare Your gospel, but to live in righteousness because of it. God, I want to say thank You first. Thank you for all the people in this room that that do know you, that have been given the opportunity to know you and walk alongside of you and apparently are doing so perfectly. But God, those that haven't or aren't, and for the gentleman that raised his hand in the back, I pray this prayer. Father God, forgive me for I have fallen short of your glory. God, I ask that you empower me by the power of your Holy Spirit to turn away from that sin, declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe in my heart that you will not only give me the ability to walk in righteousness, but that in Christ Jesus I am made righteous. Give me the strength to walk out every day the submissiveness to know that if I fall, you still love me. But the power to stand and ask for forgiveness again. We praise you, God, because you you sent your son Jesus to die for us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, because salvation is real to us. And I thank you for every person in this room I ask that you bless them during this season, bless their families during this season. Those that are hurting, struggling, God may have lost someone this year or may be dealing with something that would otherwise cause the holidays to be less joyful than they have been. God, I ask that you give them a peace like they've never known, a feeling of love like they've never known. Give them voice to speak out so that those around them, even in this room, can love them. I thank you, God, for who you are. We praise you for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.